I'm sure that everybody has that terrible thing that happened in the world when they were a kid that they can vividly remember watching play out, something that happened when they were old enough to understand the broader implications of such a tragedy. So I was 10 years old when 9-11 happened, and while I do consider it to be a formative experience of my youth in many ways, I wasn't really old enough to understand it. I knew it was scary and bad, but I couldn't really grasp the nuances of terrorism at that age. But two years later, in 2003, I was firmly in preteen territory. Middle school had already started to harden me to life's many adversities, and of course, puberty was imminent. By that point, I had developed enough of an intellectual capacity to process tragedy, both personal and public, that I could put the bad things in the news into a broader context. Also at this age, I really fell in love with space. I'm sure that's a frequently reported phase amongst American sixth graders, but it was especially true for me because my homeroom teacher that year also really liked space. He let us watch Mission to Mars and Apollo 13, we built little models of what we envisioned for future off-world human colonies, and he didn't see any reason why the girls in his class couldn't have just as much of a shot at becoming an astronaut as their male classmates. Space was not inherently sexist. I don't remember exactly what I was doing or where I was when the space shuttle Columbia disintegrated upon re-entry on February 1st, 2003. What I do remember, though, is the aftermath. I, like so many other people, NASA engineers and civilians alike, wanted to know why it happened. I followed the investigation long after the news stopped covering it, stopped showing the photos of the seven crew members who were lost, stopped caring about flame or thermal protection systems. The ill-fated STS-107 was Columbia's 28th mission. It had launched in January of 2003 and orbited Earth for 15 days, 22 hours, 20 minutes, and 32 seconds during which time the crew had conducted a series of scientific experiments, one of which may have actually led to a new phenomenon involving atmospheric dust known as TIGER, transient ionospheric glow emission in red. The crew included Commander Rick Husband, a former fighter pilot, the shuttle's pilot and youngest crew member William McCool, former Navy Captain David Brown, for whom the mission was his very first space flight, Indian-American mission specialist and robotic arm operator Kalpana Chawla, who had become the first woman born in India to go to space, former Air Force officer Michael Anderson, who had previously made 138 orbits around the Earth as a mission specialist on the space shuttle Endeavour, former Navy Captain Laurel Clark, who was actually married to a NASA flight surgeon, Dr. Jonathan Clark. He was ultimately a member of the panel at NASA who would prepare the final report on the Columbia disaster, which was over 400 pages long. The seventh crew member, former fighter pilot Elon Raman, was NASA's first Israeli astronaut and the oldest member of Columbia's crew. The shuttle's planned re-entry was for the 1st of February, with a scheduled landing at about 9.16 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. As is often the case with such disasters, things appeared to be fine until they were not. As it re-entered Earth's atmosphere, the shuttle was traveling at about 17,500 miles per hour. Starting at about 8.57 a.m., debris began to spray from the shuttle's left wing. Although the crew hadn't realized it, the extreme heat of re-entry had exposed a vulnerability, an area of damage that had, we would later learn, occurred during the shuttle's launch. Over the next several minutes, as the shuttle heated up to 3,000 degrees, more debris began to fly off much of which had become visible to people on the ground who were watching the shuttle's return. 
At 8.54, those on the ground began to see flashes of light that proceeded agonizingly for the next four minutes. By 8.59, the crew attempted to send a transmission to mission control, but it was garbled. The next and final attempt was made by Rick Husband. All that came from it was Roger, and then a few muffled sounds. The shuttle was just 16 minutes away from the launch pad when the signal was lost. This was the last transmission from the Columbia crew before the shuttle began to rapidly and horrifically visibly deteriorate in the sky over Dallas, Texas. While Mission Control in Florida had lost signal, they did not immediately realize the situation was about to become fatal. In the moments before the shuttle broke apart, the cabin pressure was still okay, and the crew likely conscious, and more than likely taking steps to try to correct whatever was going on. By 9 o'clock, the damage to the crew module was severe enough that it rapidly depressurized the cabin, which would have incapacitated the crew in less than a minute. By 9.01 and 10 seconds, the module disappeared as the shuttle disintegrated. NASA conceded that if they had not perished before, it was at this moment that they would have certainly died. As the shuttle began to spin, the force of it, combined with any number of things within the cabin that would have begun to fly around, the crew members' bodies would have been batted around violently. Their restraints, nor their helmets, were not designed for these circumstances. NASA's official report concluded that the bodies of the seven crew members would have burnt up, effectively being cremated mid-air, although witnesses later reported finding several human organs, skeletal remains, and an astronaut's helmet on their property in the days that followed. Over the next several weeks, with the help of thousands of search and rescue volunteers, NASA was ultimately able to recover the remains of each crew member, which were confirmed through DNA analysis. They also recovered something else, something somewhat extraordinary. One of the onboard scientific experiments involved small worms, which had been receiving synthetic nutrients to see if they would grow and thrive in space. While the data from that experiment was lost, miraculously, some of the worms actually survived the disaster. More of interest to scientists and something of a discovery in and of itself, the worms had survived the impact and the extreme temperatures with only minimal heat damage. As the tragedy was unfolding, thoughts immediately turned to NASA's last major disaster, the Challenger explosion in 1986. For those watching the Columbia break apart right before their eyes, both in Mission Control and anyone in Texas that day who happened to be looking skyward, there was an eerily horrific familiarity about it. The Columbia shuttle was, in fact, the oldest in NASA's fleet. Its first flight had been in 1981, five years before the Challenger exploded. But as had been the case in the aftermath of the Challenger disaster, NASA suspended all shuttle flights for two years after the Columbia disaster, and the investigation that ensued became a defining controversy for the space agency. When I recall watching this play out in the news, trying to make sense of it as a kid, what I remember as being the key and contentious element to the story was foam. It was concluded that during the shuttle's liftoff, a piece of foam insulation about the size of your average suitcase had split from the ramp that attaches the shuttle to the tanks on either side and struck the shuttle's left wing. This was clearly visible on video footage of the launch, and it wasn't even a phenomenon unknown to the ground crew. What's called foam shedding had been observed before, but the seriousness of it, the potential it had to do damage to the shuttle, was not believed to be significant. The previous occasions on which it had occurred had not caused any incidents, and so NASA saw no reason to devote resources to prevent it. The aftermath of the Columbia disaster forced NASA to take responsibility for its lax practices that had directly contributed to the tragedy. 
The consensus of the investigation was that not only was the crew in no way to blame, but that even if they had become aware of the problem while in orbit before attempting re-entry, they would have not been able to remedy it. In other words, they never had a chance. The only hope they may have had would have been if the problem had been identified and NASA could have kept Columbia in orbit for another two weeks until the Atlantis shuttle was planned to launch, which could have been turned into a rescue attempt. In the years that followed, NASA did attempt to change its safety practices to reflect the need for closer inspection, preventative measures, and safety. Just as they never forgot about the Challenger disaster, the public did not soon forget about what had happened to the Columbia shuttle. It cast a heavy and enduring shadow on the space agency. As Sean O'Keefe, who was the NASA administrator at the time, put it, it forced NASA to start a new chapter in its history. As for the shuttle launches, that chapter was nearing its end. The space shuttle program was put to an end in 2011. Today, much of NASA's to and from missions involving the International Space Station are actually being carried out as privatized resupply services provided by companies like Elon Musk's SpaceX. Oddly enough, this is something that William McCool, Columbia's youngest crew member, probably would have loved to see. In his official NASA profile, when asked about the importance of the crew's work, he said, quote, most of what we're doing is enabling technology for the future. And the folks who are going to use that technology and then continue the wheels turning are the children today. There's no greater experience, at least in my career thus far, than to see the excitement and the eyes light up when you talk to kids about experiments. I particularly loved this quote because I was, and in many ways still am, even 15 years later, one of those kids whose eyes would light up talking about space. <laughs>